The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton. I'm the director of The Hub, which is Trinity's flagship research institute for the arts and humanities. And let me begin by welcoming our distinguished guest speakers today, all of you who are watching us and joining on Zoom uh, or on the live stream through Facebook or Irish Central. And hello, as always, to those of you who are following us on Twitter. Uh, in its 10 years of existence, the Trinity Long Room Hub has brought the very best insights of Trinity's researchers working across and between arts humanities disciplines into the public domain to address local, national and global challenges. And it was in that context that in 2018, we began a unique public lecture series, Out of the Ashes. This extraordinary sequence of talks and discussions has explored how our cultural and archival heritage is embedded in very complex and often traumatic processes of destruction and recovery. The Out of the Ashes series is anchored in an Irish experience of cultural loss, an experience that we are reflecting on today, a hundred years exactly since the burning of Dublin's Custom House, and almost a hundred years since the devastating fire that destroyed the Four Courts and Ireland's National Archives. From this local starting point, Out of the Ashes has turned to a wide range of companion experiences across the world, from the destruction of the Great Library of Alexandria to the flames that engulfed the National Museum of Rio de Janeiro in 2018. We've also heard about the migrated archives that obscured the truth of colonial Kenya and the precise details of the mutilation of statues by the Taliban. We have also recalled the dedication of individuals who are committed to heritage, those who helped evacuate the treasures of the British Library during the Second World War, to those who smuggled books and manuscripts uh, out of uh, Timbuktu during the Tureg Revolt in 2013. And we've also learned about the incredible work done by people who dedicate themselves to the forensic documentation of cultural loss, and in particular, the organization, the Blue Shield. So the Out of the Ashes series has told of the grief that accompanies cultural loss, but it's also showcased the extraordinary human instinct towards cultural recovery in all its forms. And as we reach the milestone of this final lecture this evening, I want to say that on a personal level, I have found this entire series absolutely inspiring. Every single one of our distinguished uh, international and local speakers has opened my eyes to a new and a compelling aspect of what our global cultural heritage means and why we need to keep talking about it. So before we start this evening, I just want to take a brief opportunity to thank everybody who has contributed to the series, uh, to the speakers 
uh, in particular. And I also want to acknowledge the series sponsors, Sean and Sarah Reynolds. Thank you to Sean and Sarah. Your vision and your generosity in supporting these lectures has been so welcome. Uh, I want to pay tribute, of course, to the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub, including my predecessor as director, Professor Jane Allmeyer. Uh, the team has produced the series, which of course began in real life and has managed brilliantly, I think, to keep going during the lockdown. And most of all, I want to acknowledge the, the work and the genius of the series director, my colleague, Dr. Peter Crooks. These lectures came about because of Peter's imagination uh, and his dedication, but also his own pioneering scholarship on Irish cultural recovery. And this of course will be familiar to the many of you who are following Peter's groundbreaking centenary beyond 2022 project, which will create a virtual record treasury of the lost Forecourts archives. We're going to hear from Peter a little bit later, but just before we turn to our main speaker this evening, we've got a short video about the Out of the Ashes series, which has been made by Francesca O'Rafferty and the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub. So Francesca, over to you. Out of the Ashes. Over the past three years, this lecture series has explored the themes of cultural loss and recovery across the centuries, from the Library of Alexandria in antiquity to our precarious digital future. As we approach Ireland's own national archival tragedy next year, the Four Courts Blaze of 1922, this series has helped us set our story in a global context. Our distinguished lecturers from five continents are as much activists as academics. Listening to them, we have traveled the globe from India to Iraq, from Bosnia to Brazil, from Kenya to Timbuktu, and back to Dublin 100 years ago. The fragile medium we have ever invented for the preservation of information and transmission of it. It's brilliant, it's wonderful, it reaches everywhere in the universe very quickly, but it can be snuffed out so quickly. The toppling of statues in particular has created a tension between remembering and forgetting, between creation and destruction, and between heritage and renewal. And we as cultural heritage professionals have a responsibility to help our colleagues with that recovery, just like we would help um, anybody in humanitarian recovery around the world. This is just an extension of that. If you want to help people, help them save their heritage. We've seen the power of the world's great collections and seen too how collecting is all about power. We've heard the voices of the powerless lost to history because they were never recorded or because their heritage was suppressed or their archives simply stolen. And we've witnessed movements to erase the past through iconoclasm and to recover and reclaim it through creativity and collective expression. Out of the ashes, collecting, destroying, recovering. Well, that's absolutely fantastic. And uh, if you want to look in more detail at the series, Francesca will put the series brochure 
which we've made into the chat. And you can just backtrack through it and see some of the, the extraordinary talks uh, and discussions that this series uh, has involved. But let me now uh, welcome and introduce this evening's speaker. Richard Ovenden is Bodley's librarian, which means that he is the senior executive responsible for managing the Bodleian libraries at the University of Oxford. Uh, he's also held senior posts at the House of Lords Library, the National Library of Scotland and the University of Edinburgh, among others. Richard is treasurer of the Consortium of European Research Libraries, and he served as president of the Digital Preservation Coalition. He also writes and publishes on the world of books and libraries. And we welcome him this evening in particular because of his recent book, Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack. This book, Burning the Books, was sparked by questions that Richard raised about the place of archives in the Windrush scandal in Britain. And it grew into an absolutely compelling account of the destruction of knowledge that extends from the lost cities of the Assyrian Empire to the devastation of libraries during the Reformation. Something like 70 to 80% of the contents of pre-Reformation collections, I've learned, were lost at that time. It looks at the Nazi book burnings and the systematic program of cultural suppression that began in Berlin in 1933, to the destruction of records in Sarajevo, in Iraq, and in South Africa. And it also includes an intriguing look at the literary world in relation to how the papers of writers from Byron to Kafka to Sylvia Plath have been managed or perhaps mismanaged by literary executives and uh, library acquisition projects. It even considers the everyday loss that all of us, I think, face in clearing out family papers and photographs. What are we to do with our own document history? And bravely, the book looks to our future and assesses the impact on knowledge of what Richard calls the digital deluge. Above all, for me, burning the books is, I think, a call to arms. And while it acknowledges that libraries are by no means apolitical spaces, that they are, as we know, bound up with ideas of order and empire, it rightly insists that we constantly look to secure our written cultural heritage. And I think that's why at least one reviewer of Burning the Books called it a heroic achievement. Even though the book is full of humor and full of interest, it never loses sight of the very serious agenda that's set by its epigraph, which Richard takes from the writer Heinrich Hein in 1823. Wherever they burn books, they will also, in the end, burn human beings. After Richard has spoken to us, you'll have a chance to put your own questions to him. And you can see that uh, the Q&A panel is on the bottom of the Zoom screen if you, you want to put your questions in. As always, please, if you would like to, do say your name and where you're writing from. And those of you on Facebook can also use the, the Facebook question panel as well. Um, but after Richard has spoken, before we go to questions, we're going to have a short response from Helen Shenton. Helen is the librarian and archivist of Trinity College Dublin's magnificent library. And like Richard, she's held uh, many international roles in major archival and library institutions throughout the world. 
uh, in the time that she's been with us in Trinity in Dublin, I think she's brought something of a quiet revolution to the library. And I hope that many of you will have seen the really wonderful news last week that she and her team have secured substantial government funding towards the redevelopment of Trinity Library so that its unique collections can be properly protected for future generations. So I want to congratulate you, Helen, on that tremendous achievement. We look forward to hearing from you in due course, but I will now hand over with very great pleasure to Richard Ovenden. Thank you very much indeed, Eve. That's a very, very generous uh, introduction um, indeed. And all I can say is how devastated I am not to be with you in Dublin tonight, um, a city I have visited for 30 years and will never uh, give up uh, any opportunity to come back to Dublin. So I hope uh, it won't be too long before I'm back with you. Um, but also just to add my own delight at the news of the Irish government's investment in Trinity's library, um, absolutely the right thing to do and huge congratulations to Helen and her colleagues. So uh, I'm going to attempt through the miracles of modern technology to share my screen. They said it couldn't be done, but they were wrong. And there it goes. I hope you can see that. Um, and um, so my talk tonight is indeed based on my book. And um, I'm going to begin, of course, with reference to, as, as Eve said, the, um, the tragic event that took place on this day a century ago, the, uh, the fire at the, um, the Custom House, which uh, resulted in the loss of uh, a great many important records from uh, across Ireland and uh, a, a symbol of really the, the, the value that these records have for um, your society and your uh, history uh, and indeed your identity as, as a people and as a nation. And of course, the following year um, would see even greater devastation. And I, I think the, the, the series of lectures and the program, the digital recovery program that you have in place is just absolutely outstanding. And um, uh, I'm delighted to, to be part of it. But really, I'd like to talk to you about this topic more broadly, and I'd like to sort of begin by um, quoting George Orwell, because I've um, gone back to read Orwell in, in recent years, having first read him as a teenager and not really having gone back to that famous novel since, but... Uh, of course, I've been a librarian, I've held uh, various roles in the information world, and rereading Orwell made me really, made me think how much it speaks to the power of information and knowledge and how critical it is um, for society. And I think this idea of erasure and the uh, ability to rewrite history um, when the truth becomes forgotten is absolutely at the heart of what I want to talk to you about. But I think more generally my book was uh, an attempt to focus attention on the social importance of preservation of knowledge. And of course I come from an institution that's 
been uh, preserving knowledge for over 400 years, but itself came, was born out of a moment of, of destruction. But I think more broadly in society today, I've been concerned that the role that libraries and archives play is not recognized enough. It's, it's essential value for society, for democracy, uh, as a, really, a, really as a kind of pillar of open society is not valued enough and I want my book to be some contribution to uh, addressing that deficit. But it was also written to some extent because of um, a chance encounter I had in Berlin in 2018 when I uh, happened to visit the Staatsbibliothek zu Berlin in its um, renovated building on Unter den Linden and waiting to go into a meeting I stumbled upon the scene at which the events on this slide that you're looking at took place on the 10th of May 1933. The famous orchestrated book burning um, by Joseph Goebbels and the Nazi party, where students raided local libraries and bookshops and uh, threw the contents onto a great fire, filmed, uh, of course, uh, and replayed across Germany in subsequent years. But these events were orchestrated across a number of cities on that night. And it really heralded um, uh, the, the, the mass destruction of knowledge that took place uh, under the Nazi regime. And of course, a cultural and intellectual and scientific genocide that prefigured the human genocide of the Holocaust. And what struck me in particular, walking around what is now called Babelplatz in the center of Berlin, this very kind of culturally resonant place, was that those events took place in living memory. You know, my mother, um, who's still with us, age 92, was a small child when those events took place. And we must not forget how recent these kinds of horrors uh, have been and how easily they can recur. And of course, um, about the time that that happened, we were coming to terms with the uh, revelation made by Kellyanne Conway, President Trump's press secretary, that there could exist in our world such things as alternate facts. The alternate facts, of course, being that more people so uh, supposedly attended President Trump's inauguration than had attended uh, President Obama's um, uh, uh, in 2009, despite um, their evidence to the contrary. But as Eve said, uh, the book was really triggered by my outrage at the discovery through uh, a Guardian newspaper journalistic investigation that the Home Office in the UK, which was in the midst of instigating uh, uh, its uh, immigration policy known as the hostile environment, um, had destroyed deliberately an archive of uh, records and documents that the same individuals, our fellow citizens from the Windrush era, could have used to defend their right to um, settle status in the UK. Uh, but no, the Home Office had decided, and of course the, it's a big question whether it was malicious or just incompetence, that those records had been destroyed. But I wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times um, the, the, the day after um, reading that account and um, uh, the book really followed from that from that uh, uh, event. So my book does take uh, a pretty long sweep of history. It goes back to the uh, ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, the first 
um, communities to form libraries and archives that we know of, actually some of them going back to 5,000 years before the Christian era. So, you know, a really extraordinary um, uh, uh, series of discoveries that have been made since the excavations of those cities began in the middle of the 19th century. And um, again, in 2018, I attended the marvelous exhibition at the British Museum in London called I Am Ashurbanipal. And at the heart of that exhibition was the most extraordinary library I'd ever seen. And here's a picture of it, the clay tablet library of King Ashurbanipal. Uh, the curators of that show argued that it was um, the first, the earliest um, uh, library which attempted to uh, bring together the whole of human knowledge as it was understood at the time. Um, but what scholars have discovered since um, they began working on the collection when it was uh, brought to London in the middle of the 19th century is that we know actually quite a lot about how those libraries and archives were formed and in particular how Ashurbanipal's library was formed and it was formed in part by targeting the collections in libraries and archives in enemy states, neighboring states, in particular Babylonia, where Ashurbanipal knew there was knowledge that he really wanted and that knowledge he wanted his agents to take away, to seize by force if necessary from those neighboring collections to make his own collection stronger. So this idea that you weaken your enemies by removing knowledge from them and you make yourself stronger. And in particular, the texts that he was most keen to get hold of were ones which helped him predict the future. Divination, astrology, astronomy. And again, I'd like you to hold that thought because we'll come back to it at the end of my talk. Uh, and then I talk a little bit about the Library of Alexandria, of course, one of the great um, uh, libraries in history, which is thought of as having been deliberately destroyed. Uh, and uh, my own library in the Bodleian holds a, a manuscript, uh, the earliest manuscript of Euclid's Elements of Geometry. Uh, and Euclid, of course, wrote his book in the Great Library of Alexandria. And um, that library itself um, uh, you, you know, if you read uh, all sorts of uh, accounts of ancient writers right through to um, watching Carl Sagan's um, Cosmos TV program, the first episode of that series, he go, he says if he could go anywhere back in time, he'd go to the Library of Alexandria before the fire because he would save so much knowledge from that terrible event. Now, actually, what scholars agree on is that the library was the biggest one that anybody knew of and that it was destroyed. But actually that destruction took place not on a single night, but over a long period of time, over centuries. And it's essentially a tale of neglect, of the loss of patronage, the loss of prestige, and the loss of funding. And the library ceased to exist. It ceased to fulfill its function because of that series of neglects. And I think that's an important lesson for us today, a kind of use it or lose it uh, lesson. I'd like to fast forward in time now to the Reformation of the 16th century and to some extent to my own city, my own library. Um, uh, and um, actually last year, uh, the Bodleian celebrated, in essence, its 700th anniversary because its predecessor institution, the, the Central University Library, was founded in 1320 by um, Thomas Cobham, Bishop of Worcester, um, who built a structure adjacent to 
the University Church of St Mary's. You can see it there, a two-storey building uh, with the Convocation House on the ground floor and the library in the room above. It's still called the library room to this day. And um, we have a handful of books only from that original collection from the medieval university. Here's one of them from the 15th century given to us by Gilbert Keimer, the Dean of Salisbury. Uh, and um, that collection grew too big for that room in the university church and it was moved to a purpose-built structure which is, still exists today. Um, it's known as Duke Humphreys Library. It's kind of the heart of the library system in Oxford today. Um, but it was visited by the commissioners of Edward VI in the late 1540s and the books were essentially destroyed. Only 11 of them are known to survive from probably 500 and the rest of the books as a contemporary saying went um, were dog cheap and whole libraries could be had for an inconsiderable nothing. And I'd like to um, move us um, just at the same period to what was happening to other libraries across the whole country. And here is Glastonbury Abbey, the library um, of one of the most famous and richest monasteries in the medieval uh, country. And uh, I'm standing on the site of where the medieval library would have been. And that library, uh, for the most part, ended up as scraps uh, like the contents of many other libraries in Oxford and elsewhere. And those scraps were used um, in many cases to line the bindings of modern, or what at the time were modern printed books. And, and really only uh, the fragments of most of the contents of those libraries remain. And there is a great industry of scholarship today to reconstruct those fragmentary uh, uh, books. But going back to Glastonbury, we are extraordinarily fortunate, uh, again, in my institution to have the archive of a scholar called uh, John Leland, who was commissioned by Henry VIII to visit those libraries on the eve of the Reformation in the 1530s in order to find books that would help him with his intellectual case to divorce um, uh, Catherine of Aragon and to marry the beautiful courtier Anne Boleyn and then later uh, on to divorce the church in England from the uh, the, the rule of uh, the, the, the church in Rome and from papal authority and to seize for the crown to seize uh, monastic properties and to establish himself as the head of the church in England. And we actually miraculously have the list of books which um, John Leland visited when he came to the library of Glastonbury Abbey. And we also have a note, his own kind of record of what he felt when he crossed the threshold of the library. He said that um, he swooned. Um, he was so uh, dumbstruck by the sight of the ancient books in the library, he recounts, that um, he was um, momentarily stopped in his tracks. And I'd like to draw your attention to the bottom entry of this book, Grammatica Uticis, it says, Liber Olim Sancti Dunstani. And fortunately, we actually have that book, which John Leland looked at in 1533. It's known today as uh, St Dunstan's class book. It's uh, um, actually a miscellany of texts from the um, 7th, 8th and uh, 10th centuries. And um, it includes, uh, uh, you know, you can just about see St Dunstan himself kneeling at the foot of Christ, um, arguably the earliest self-portrait in English art. 
But that book, its survival, one of only 60 to survive from the probably 1,500 or 2,000 books in Glastonbury Abbey, was the result of a response to the Reformation, a response to the destruction of books, which was made by this man, Sir Thomas Bodley, the re-founder of the destroyed university library, who took it upon himself to um, uh, pay the cost of re-establishing that collection in a building and in an institution that would be dedicated to the preservation of knowledge. And, um, you know, those lead-lined cupboards where the manuscripts like St Dunstan's class book, among the earliest gifts to the library in the 17th century, were placed in order to ensure their preservation. And that spirit of preservation um, continued uh, as a kind of uh, a, a bit of DNA in the library. And in the 1670s, when uh, the works of uh, this man, John Milton, and the other regicides were um, condemned to flames again by uh, royal authority, um, my predecessor Thomas Hyde, the fifth librarian, hid the precious volume of Milton's works, which the author himself had presented to the, the Bodleian in the uh, 1650s um, from that conflagration that took place just outside of the library in the school's quadrangle. And so Hyde must have risked something himself by, by protecting that precious volume and, and, and removing the entry from the catalogue. I'm going to move us forward in time pretty swiftly, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to the 19th century and to the events which this gentleman, uh, Admiral Sir George Coburn, the leader of a British expeditionary force to uh, America in the War of 1812, and uh, in particular, the man who was responsible for the scene in the back of this extraordinary mezzotint, uh, now in the Library of Congress, um, which is the burning of Washington. And Washington was besieged and entered by Coburn's troops in August 1814. And they found the only substantial stone building, the Congress building, and they set fire to it. And of course, it contained a room with the Library of Congress, the library that was necessary for the efficient running of the legislature and indeed for the officers of the executive in order to manage state affairs. There were uh, volumes of the journals of the House of Commons, there were state trials, there were uh, uh, legal theories, there were maps of North America, but these were all conveniently torched by the British troops. And we have a, a contemporary account by a man called George Gleig, uh, a Scotsman who was in the British uh, forces, who even he uh, wrote that um, the burning of the Library of Congress was uh, regrettable, he said, even though the scene of the city in flames, uh, he could think of nothing more sublime. But again, that destruction of the Library of Congress triggered an act of renewal and an act of commitment to preservation. And that act was taken by Thomas Jefferson, who heard from his uh, country home in Monticello in Virginia uh, that the library had been destroyed. And he wrote immediately to a Washington newspaper saying how outraged he was at this act of barbarism. He invoked the spirit of Alexandria and he offered his own collection, the largest private library in North America at the time, um, 
um, not as a gift, but for uh, to be bought by Congress at favorable rates. And indeed, 7,500 um, 7, books roughly were purchased by Congress. It took them actually a few months to debate it. Um, one party thought they should and another party thought it was a waste of money. But indeed, they, they bought Jefferson's books and there's a very moving um, uh, uh, exhibition in the Library of Congress, if you go and visit it, um, to uh, Jefferson's Library, which most of which was unfortunately destroyed in an accidental fire in 1851. But it really triggered the modern institution that we all know and respect today. I'd like to move us again in time to uh, the Holocaust of um, the, 20th, the middle of the 20th century and to the city of Vilna or Vilnius as it's known today, the capital city of Lithuania, a city famous for its Jewish community um, uh, uh, on, on the eve of World War II, but also famous for its libraries and archives. And here's one of them, the Strashun Library, gifted to the Jewish community in Vilna by a wealthy um, a businessman and book collector uh, and uh, with a vibrant reading room and a, 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 a very respected uh, librarian, uh, Chaika Lunsky, who you see on the right. And there was another important institution in the city the, uh, called the YIVO, the Yiddish Institute, which uh, had been founded in the 1920s and dedicated itself to preserving the culture and, uh, uh, and community of um, ordinary Jews, the, 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 the Yiddish culture of uh, the vast majority of the Jewish population of Central and Eastern Europe. And here they you can see um, uh, a folk song that they collected, uh, but also more prominent documents like the diary of Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism. But of course, in um, 1941, Operation Barbarossa unleashed the Blitzkrieg on Central and Eastern Europe, and fast behind them came an, uh, uh, a body called the um, Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg, led by this, uh, founded by this man, uh, uh, Alfred Rosenberg, the, really the chief architect of anti-Semitism in the Nazi regime. Um, who established at the same time as the uh, operational group um, an institute, a kind of perverted research institute in Frankfurt dedicated to the study of, uh, inverted commas, the Jewish question. And that uh, operational group was led in the field by this man, uh, a Nazi librarian called Johannes Pohl, and Pohl's team went in uh, in in Vilna, as well as in other cities, behind the stormtroopers, and they um, identified individuals in the ghetto. Here is the, the Vilna ghetto, who were librarians and archivists and scholars who were brought out each day to sort through the books and documents in those uh, captured libraries and archives important unique materials would be sent back to Rosenberg's Institute in Frankfurt, the rest to destruction in local paper mills. And a this, the team of Jewish librarians and archivists that were forced at gunpoint out of the ghetto to undertake this sorting were known by the German guards as the Paper Brigade. And they took it upon themselves to hold this title and they became rather proud of it. Um, but what they actually did 
was to smuggle pages and entire volumes sometimes in their clothing and in other ingenious means back into the ghetto every evening. They even persuaded um, the Nazis that they needed those uh, uh, paper to light the, the fires, the, the, the stoves in the ghetto. And they were actually able um, to, to smuggle hundreds of thousands of pages back into the ghetto um, at, where they were hidden in the hope that some of them would survive and be able to come back and uncover uh, the, the, the documentary uh, evidence of their own community and, uh, uh, and culture. And they risked their lives every time that they did this. And you can see the fate of some of those uh, by the Nazis of some of those Jewish documents. Here's a, uh, a Talmud scroll, which on the other side was used as a canvas, in this case, for a, a portrait of the leading Austrian Nazi, Arthur Zeiss Inkfart. Um, but this um, this hiding of 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 uh, uh, of secreted documents took place not just in Vilna but in other cities. Here, after World War II, you see the archive of the Warsaw Ghetto, which was created by a group called Oineg Shabes, led by an extraordinary man called Erwin Ringelbrum, and uh, two of the three caches of documents uh, secreted in uh, milk, uh, milk canisters um, were uh, thankfully uncovered after World War II. So we have this extraordinary trove of materials, but sadly, of course, Ringelblum, his group, and most of the paper brigade were murdered by the Nazis. Um, and here you see American troops uncovering uh, the, the, the store of documents in the Rosenberg Institute in Frankfurt after the war. And some of those documents were um, uh, captured in Frankfurt, were sent back to the YIVO Institute's New York branch, which had miraculously uh, been established just before World War II. And so they were able to take receipt of the uh, recovered unique materials that had found their way back to Frankfurt. But um, uh, extraordinarily, the paper, the, uh, a couple of members of the paper brigade uh, escaped uh, the liquidation of the ghetto in Vilna. They joined the partisans in the forest and they came back, recovered the documents in the ghetto and re-established the Yivo Institute only to find a few years later that the Soviet regime regarded it as anti-communist and they forced the books to the paper mill again. This time they were rescued by a Lithuanian librarian, Antonas Ulpis, here he is on your screen, who hid the documents in an outpost of the National Library of Lithuania, um, which had been formed in a disused church, and he even hid them in the organ pipes, um, only revealing that they were, um, uh, they were there after 1989 and Glasnost, um, even though, uh, even though um, uh, uh, he had died, he had passed the secret on to a few of his colleagues. Um, in more recent times, of course, we have the, um, the tragedy that was the uh, ethnic conflicts um, in the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And in particular, in August 1992, uh, again, within living memory. My brother was in the UN forces in Kosovo at the time um, uh, and last year we marked just 25 years since the massacre at Srebrenica. But in August 1992 
the National Library of Bosnia was shelled with incendiary devices by Serb militia besieging Sarajevo. And that destruction of um, the, the symbol of multicultural Bosnia with its collections of Jewish, Muslim and Christian texts. And of course, it was the university library as well. Um, so in a sense, rather like Trinity's library as a national library and a university library, but it's, uh, it was set on fire by the incendiary devices. And what's even worse was that the firefighters and librarians who tried to rescue collections were targeted by Serb snipers. Um, I'd like to um, draw, begin to draw to a close by looking at, um, we, we've looked at those kind of historic incidents. Some of them, uh, although you could argue that um, the Bosnian conflict was historic, but you know it's so recent that it almost seems like seems like yesterday. But I'd like to to take our current world and the domain of knowledge and the contested domain of knowledge that we have in our world today. And of course, um, we've seen the growth, the rapid growth in dominance of what my colleague in Oxford, Timothy Gartnash, calls the private superpowers, the big tech companies who have such massive scale of reach on their platforms that they really control uh, social knowledge to an enormous degree today. And they can just delete knowledge at an extraordinary, uh, extraordinary stroke. Um, but we also see the fragility of public knowledge. Um, a, a famous investigation by the Harvard Law Library in 2011 um, on the, uh, the public website of the Supreme Court found that 40% of the web links were broken. And so how can you have a functioning society if its citizens have not got access to the laws of the land? Um, they're addressing uh, this issue uh, uh, now, of course, but it shows how vital it is that digital preservation is at the forefront of modern society's agenda. And we also saw how contested knowledge is in, in very recent times. Here's a fabulous photograph by the great photojournalist Ashley Gilbertson taken in January of this year with the, the siege of um, the, cap, the US Capitol building. And um, that was made possible by the use of um, mobile messaging systems, in particular parlor and encrypted messaging systems. Um, but that was, uh, taken as soon as that was discovered that the uh, the groups were using this platform it was taken off the app stores and and deleted very very rapidly um, but fortunately enough that wonderful institution in America the Internet Archive had been capturing it um, uh, uh, you know on a pretty regular basis and you can see um, after the 17th of January it becomes impossible because it's been taken away uh, but you can you can see their archival work and of course we also seen um, how influential those platforms can be um, when they delete the president's um, uh, social media accounts. And uh, we've seen just how impactful that's been um, uh, uh, in, in, you know, across the globe that he has uh, Donald Trump with his 88 million followers uh, no longer had access to it, uh, the electorate in the United States or um, society across the globe. 
but we also saw um, through the revelations of Cambridge Analytica's involvement with Facebook in the 2016 Brexit referendum, the 2016 presidential elections in the United States and in uh, other elections across the globe, in how easy it is to manipulate electorates through targeted political advertising, um, illegally using private knowledge, private um, uh, uh, Facebook date, personal private Facebook data, which was mashed up um, by Cambridge Analytica with other data sets in order to target political advertising or to target voter suppression. And libraries and archives are beginning to, to kind of fight back. And it's extremely difficult for us when we're faced with the enormous power, the scale, the rapidity of innovation that the private superpowers have at their disposal because they are just so wealthy. But the National Library in New Zealand has a, a very uh, excellent project now to uh, invite New Zealand citizens to donate their Facebook archive, for example. I'd like to just uh, bring you back to um, uh, the Library of Ashurbanipal and his seizing of knowledge in order to help him predict the future. And that's what's happening today. I don't know how many of you wear Fitbits or uh, Apple Watches, but they, of course, are in incredibly useful for monitoring your personal biometric data. But you, they are also transmitting that health information back um, to those tech companies who are able, of course, to mash it up with other data sources. So Google, of course, recently purchased Fitbit. So they're able to match up your personal health records with your Google searches, for example, um, in order to help predict your future health. And um, what are they going to do with that, um, that mashed up data? That's one of the big questions I think that society is faced with today, um, because they could sell that data to um, to medical insurers, for example, or in totalitarian regimes, perhaps it might be used to decide um, if your health can be predicted, uh, who should receive state benefits or who should receive um, uh, a public education. We've got to face the facts that the private superpowers are controlling more and more of our lives. And of course, we saw how the deletion of knowledge through um, the activities of Donald Trump's Facebook account, captured by one of what I call the activist archive groups called FactBase. Um, uh, I, I, I snapshotted this um, uh, some time ago uh, at the uh, just before he um, left, um, uh, his, his Facebook account was taken away from him and his Twitter account was taken away from him. He'd actually deleted 1,400 uh, uh, Twitter posts. And it brings us back to Orwell's quote, which I began the talk with, um, in terms of the erasure of the past and the ability to um, uh, uh, reintroduce alternate facts to um, replace the truth. I'd like to finish, if I may, with five reasons why we should value libraries and archives in our society today, because I think, unfortunately, those in power, those with uh, funding, um, those with influence in public life need to be reminded of these. 
Um, and the first, of course, is education. Um, you know, to some extent, the, the public library movement was founded out of the ideas of useful knowledge and the idea of self-education. And of course, today, uh, libraries of all kinds are vital education uh, in educational institutions. They support schools, they support universities, they support private individuals, um, uh, and they are great leveling up institutions. They allow um, uh, the rich and the poor to uh, have uh, uniform access to knowledge, and uh, the library staff with their skills are able to support those who have not had the benefit of other forms of education uh, uh, indeed. But they also bring a diversity of knowledge and great libraries like yours in, in Ireland, like Trinity, like uh, the National Library, like Marsh's Library, have great histories of bringing um, diverse languages, diverse ideas, uh, diverse um, and sometimes very challenging uh, thoughts into communities which might find it difficult to access that knowledge. But there it is for you in the library. And um, you know, in my book, I quote John Stuart Mill, who says that, you know, how can you have, um, how can you know that your ideas are worth anything if you lack um, the ability to challenge them through a diversity of ideas? But of course, libraries and archives and perhaps particularly archives are repositories of rights, of the rights of individuals. They're, um, you know, we saw that with their loss in the Windrush archives that the Home Office had, but we saw that in the preservation of the Stasi archive um, after 1989, where ordinary citizens, uh, and of course this is before social media, moved into their local Stasi headquarters to stop the files of individuals from being destroyed. And uh, a new institution, archival institution was formed called the Gauk Authority, which gave access to citizens, gave them the right to access their own file to see who the Stasi had employed to inform on them. And I think this was a very important step in um, allowing Germany to confront its difficult past. And uh, I, I also, uh, in my book, contrast that with what has not been able to happen in Iraq because their equivalent, the Ba'ath Party archives, was actually removed from Iraq in 2005 and has only just uh, returned to that, their, uh, that country where it's essentially part of the National Archives. And libraries and archives are repositories also of facts and truth, places where um, ideas and public statements can be verified. Um, and in an increasingly, uh, in an age where truth and facts are being contested, uh, how important is it that we have these institutions where um, uh, uh, facts and truth can uh, be verified through reference? And finally, I think libraries and archives are places where the identity of communities, of cultures, of nations can be nurtured and can be, uh, uh, can be protected and can be celebrated and accessed. And I think, um, although I've got a picture here of the, uh, the, the, 
members of the UK Ethiopian community looking at Ethiopian manuscripts in the Bodleian. It could easily uh, uh, have, have been many other communities. And I, I, I'm sure um, in Ireland, uh, this is um, true even more so where the National Library, where Trinity's Library are repositories of your uh, cultural and community identity. So um, I'm going to stop talking and stop sharing my screen. And um, I think I'm handing back to Eve, is that right? You are indeed, Richard, and, and thank you very much indeed. And you've managed to frame uh, so eloquently many points which have been touched on by previous speakers in this series, uh, not least that extraordinary impulse that drives human beings whose lives are under threat uh, to, to recover and try to protect um, uh, archives and, and documents, uh, an absolutely extraordinary account um, that you touch on in, in your chapter on the Paper Brigade and that you've told us a bit about today. Uh, I know there will be lots of questions. I can already see many questions uh, in the Q&A panel. So please people do keep your questions and your comments coming. Uh, but now I would like to invite our own librarian and archivist, Trinity College's Helen Shenton to respond to Richard. Um, thank you very much, Eve, and thank you very much, um, uh, Richard, for such a magnificent sweeping journey through thousands of years. You've taken your theme of um, burning of the books as a starting point you've taken in neglecting the books, taking the books, defending the books, preserving the books and saving the books. Um, your book is extremely readable, but you've now really brought it um, into three dimensions with your talk. Thank you so much. Um, in response, I'll just make um, a few observations. And my first was how on reading it, it really struck me about the, the, one of the characteristics of totalitarian regimes being this systematic and exquisitely detailed archiving. And I once visited Tolsleng, um, which is the genocide museum in Phnom Penh in Cambodia. And the museum is in the very, it's in a secondary school, which was the place of systematic torture before people were sent to the killing fields. It's brutal, it's gut-wrenchingly horrific to bear witness um, to such utter obscene inhumanity. The birds don't sink still in the area. People won't live there because of the ghosts. But in the context of your burning the books, one of the things that really struck me was that in their schoolrooms, which were all around the courtyard, were row upon row of haunting photographs on the walls of terrified people, all neatly and meticulously documented and just archiving so many individual horror stories and then to your point about the Stasi in East Germany, your staggering statistic that there were 270,000 people, including 180,000 informers or unofficial collaborators, keeping 5.6 million people under surveillance, amassing 111 kilometers of files in total. And the one positive that I can think of of such meticulous documentation and archiving is that if it survives, 
then the truth and reconciliation or whatever or however uh, the process of confronting the past happens, at least in the aftermath, it can be used as, as evidence. And I was thinking about the Stasi records, the Gok authority that you mentioned about gradually opening up the archives, the Stasi Museum in Leipzig and Berlin, and particularly the chilling book by your colleague in, in, in Oxford, Timothy Garth Nash, when he was, uh, he's obviously a journalist and also an historian and lived in East Germany. And he asked to see his file. And then he wrote this, an amazing book called The File, which documents, he went and confronted every individual who had um, spied on him. And, um, and in so many cases with this utterly mundane detail and he, the, the conversations that he has with the people who um, spied on him are riveting. So at least, I mean, the only positive I can think of is that that meticulousness of totalitarian regimes means ironically that at least the past can be confronted. And then my second response was around displaced and migrated archives and how they're part of that very, very lively and current contested history. And here at Trinity, uh, there's a two year project about to start called um, uh, Colonial Legacy, which will systematically and thoughtfully research the colonial legacy of Trinity College. And that will include the library and archives. And I do think that that's a way um, to address these issues take the long view, do the research, evidence-based, and then have an eyes wide op open discussion. And your critique of how colonial archives are seen as belonging to the colonial power, I didn't mean to go me, just because I'm from the UK, but <laughs> I just noticed that. <laughs> and they are, they're not seen though, as belonging so much to the colonized. That just crystallized for me about the controlling power of archives. And I think it's actually something that we could um, uh, reflect on in the context of beyond 2022, um, if Peter would like to comment on that afterwards. Um, my third point is not so much about the burning the book, books, but burning the bits and bytes. Um, and according to Statista, the total digital data universe doubled between 2019 and 2021 from 41 to 74 zettabytes, so that's 74 trillion gigabytes. In Ireland, over the last couple of weeks, we've um, there's been a ransomware attack on the HSE, which is the health service uh, health uh, service executive, and that's paralysed much of the health service, and it's had an appalling effect of people who are in the middle of radiotherapy and so on. And obviously there's been uh, ransomware attacks on the, uh, the colonial pipeline in the US and Toshiba and so on. So for all, we have all this data, but in so, some ways it's so, to your point, vulnerable to digital corruption and digital destruction. But then on the other hand, there's the whole debate about radical transparency. And obviously, um, we're all benefiting from the current example of how the world has come together, how the government and academia and big pharma have come together to create vaccines in record time. And 
and also there's the whole open scholarship movement in its broadest societal uh, 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 um, uh, uh, manifestation of making, making publicly uh, funded research available to everyone for the public good. And I'm wondering, how do we reconcile that paradox between radical transparency and then the increased risk of cyber attacks as being like the new one of the new burning of books, and then with all the um, uh, attendant risk of catastrophic loss. And then I'd make a point about catastrophic loss, about obvious loss, and then insidious, slow, unseen loss. And you probably know about um, NARA, the National Archives and Records Administration in the, in the States. They used to use a phrase about fast disasters and slow disasters, or loud disasters and quiet disasters. And so, say so the fire in the recent, uh, the very recent fire at um, the University of Cape Town Library, that's a fast, loud disaster with instantaneous catastrophic loss. But there's also poor environmental conditions, you know, poor inappropriate humidity, inappropriate temperature, uh, particulate pollution and so on, so on. And that can slowly destroy books and archives, but it's slow, it's out of mind, it's not seen, it's not, it's just creeping. Um, and in fact, um, both um, uh, 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 yourself, Richard, and, and you, Eve, are very uh, generously Reference the um, uh, the old library redevelopment project that we're just delighted we're just uh, have got the go ahead basically, and we've used that concept of slow and fast or loud and quiet um, uh, disasters um, as as part of our as the driver actually, because it is a combination of trying to prevent both. So we need to improve the fire prevention and the fire suppression, obviously. Um, the, 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 the wooden spire of Notre Dame Cathedral on the Paris uh, Parisian skyline is on our minds. Obviously, we want to absolutely prevent that. But we also need to in, improve the environmental conditions of the collections, uh, the temperature, the humidity, the particular pollution, to prevent that slow, unseen deterioration of the paper and the leather and the parchment. Um, now my fourth point is about um, um, libraries and archives is about being activists. And Richard, you know extremely well that here in Ireland, and you have helped us by being an advocate and an activist for this, but unlike the majority of European countries, we still don't have legislation for archiving the .ie domain. We came this close in the last round of legislation. And that means, to use that well-worn phrase, that we've got a digital black hole in the collective contemporary memory of contemporary Ireland. The National Library is doing some web archiving here at Trinity. We were so worried that we uh, set up a, a project called eDeposit um, Island, where we offered it for government publications. And we've actually got reports which, um, for example, Irish Water, there was a big controversy, a big brouhaha here. We've now got some of the reports that have disappeared from any of the other government websites, and we've, we're holding them uh, for the future. Um, and we will continue to um, uh, um, let lobby, if you like, and activate for legislation for archiving the .ie domain. 
And as others in this series have said of Out of the Ashes, I do think that the long-term uh, preservation of digital material is still one of our most urgent challenges. You and I were both founding members of the UK um, Digital Preservation Coalition, and we have absolutely not cracked it yet. And then my final comment on reading your very fine book is that it struck me that in general, if you asked anyone about the theme of burning of books, that they think of the Nazis and they think of Fahrenheit 451. And it's an absolute testament to the magnificent sweep of your book that there's, there's a, obviously a, a very strong and, and magnificent chapter on the Nazis, but only one amongst so many. And I noticed you only sort of tangentially referenced Fahrenheit 451. And I'll offer um, this story as my concluding remark. Um, I used to work in conservation um, and I used to be a conservator, um, uh, a, a, a book and manuscript conservator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And we often had people ask, um, who would ask for advice and they wanted to bring an object in. The, and we, we tried to give the advice over the phone or to direct them to other sources of information rather than come in in person. Well, a woman phoned um, for advice about a burnt book. And she was very, very persistent about wanting to come in with this burnt book. So I eventually agreed to, to meet her one lunchtime. Uh, and then come the day, uh, just before lunchtime, I received a phone call to say that she, wouldn't, she couldn't come in. I didn't think anything more about it until on the, the news that later that day, um, Robert Maxwell had died um, um, falling off a boat and she was Mrs. Maxwell. And that burnt book, it was a Bible and it had survived the gas chambers and the ovens at Auschwitz. So that burnt book, it's so much more, I mean, it is an absolute icon. It's a symbol of survival. It's so much more. It's certainly not just a burnt book anymore. Um, so thank you um, so much, Richard, again. And I would just like to thank um, in particular, uh, um, Peter Crooks for um, involving me in the final event of this stellar, stellar three-year series which has been absolutely magnificent. Um, and I'll pass back to Eve. Thank you, Eve. Well, thank you very much, Helen. Uh, we are going to uh, go to questions from uh, those of you who are joining us, but uh, I might just first, I, I'm sure this is not protocol, but uh, we don't usually ask the respondee to, to respond to the respondent. <laughs> but Richard, I wonder if you might want to, to respond to, some of Helen's points, but particularly the, the question that she's posing around this tricky subject of colonial legacies, something that's very much on our mind at the moment in Dublin, and I know, of course, has been a, a, a huge topic in the UK as well. Um, and it's something that you do discuss in your book, but how are we to move forward on this very difficult position that librarians find themselves in as guardians of archives but guardians of archives that perhaps are under pressure to be reconstituted or sent back to their original uh, place of, of origin. I mean, I think, I think it is a, a, 
you know, a hugely important issue that we we all face. I think our colleagues in the museum community have had it, um, uh, are facing it in a more kind of profound way, I think, at the moment. And the Sar Savoy report, uh, which um, was uh, commissioned um, by the French uh, government uh, a few years ago, really around the restitution of uh, African objects, uh, kind of touched on the topic of archives. And um, I, I know that you've had speakers in your series looking at it, and I, I certainly discuss it in my book. We have, uh, you know, we have collections of our own. I think the advantage to some extent that the library and archive community has over the museum community is that particularly when it comes to archives and particularly when it comes to colonial era archives, is that we have the benefit of digitization. And I think it's much more straight. And lots of these documents are not beautiful things. They're not intrinsic. They're not like the Benin bronzes. They're not absolutely, you know, supreme works of, um, you know, artistic and cultural creation. They are vitally important, but they are intrinsically kind of boring and... <laughs> kind of ugly <laughs> I mean you know um and so they they but they also as being essentially two-dimensional objects lend themselves to digitization much more easily and I think that uh, the use of that technology can enable um access by communities which you know and, and from many countries in the world you know post-colonial their communities are communities of diaspora to some extent so they're not just in the, the former colony or indeed in the former colonial power, um, but they're spread all over the world. So they have access to them. But it also ought to make it easier for the, if you like, the colonial holding institution who may now be looking at these documents and saying, should we really have them? Um, to give them back because they still, they can digitize them and keep the digital and perhaps even keep the responsibility for hosting the digitized versions, which as, as we were discussing is an expensive and difficult thing. And it's not necessarily a, uh, uh, an alternative preservation medium because it just creates a new thing that needs to be preserved, um, but it is an alternative access medium. And so um, I think that's that's one way to approach it is is through digitization and to some extent, I think through collaborative digitization. And so being able to work with partners in, uh, you know, former colonial um, institute, uh, former colonial countries and former institutions in those countries um, is is one way of approaching it and certainly hiding it, pretending it don't they don't exist. Um, ignoring legal claims and then being forced by a court of law to admit that you've got an enormous warehouse full of it, which is what happened to the UK government in 2011 with the, the Kenyan and other um, uh, migrated archives is definitely not the way to do it. No, absolutely not. Uh, more to be said about this, I know, uh, but I want to go to some points and questions that have come in uh, briefly. Donald Denham is with us again. Donald, good to have you. And Donald was the uh, ambassador in Vilnius in 2005, the Irish ambassador there. Uh, he is uh, say, reporting that the Institute of Yiddish, Yiddish Studies 
uh, was in a very healthy state under the then director. But he adds that, of course, uh, it was actually Lithuanians themselves, uh, along with the, the Nazis, who were responsible for the Holocaust in Lithuania and presumably also for the destruction of artifacts. I suppose that is a, a way into a question, Richard, about the role of ordinary citizens in these power processes that you've been talking about. It isn't always kings, prime ministers, and indeed librarians, senior librarians, who are uh, engaging in the kind of recuperation of material or its destruction. Do we know enough about what ordinary people have done to books? In history. Um, I, I think this is a really good question because I think it's uh, a field which needs more study um, and I think there are certain kind of case studies I mean you know there's been uh, a lot more work done on library libraries in World War II in Germany by German historians in recent years there's now a whole program which has become much more prominent actually really only in the past 10 years to search through the collections of German libraries you, you know university libraries the big city libraries to look for essentially stolen confiscated Jewish books and to 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 seek to repatriate them and I think that that process had actually been going on since um, the 1950s but has really only um, in relatively recent years taken on a, a new hold but I think that that process of um, you know looking uh, historically at what has happened to library and archival collections I, I think in the past certainly sort of when I entered the profession it was a bit of a kind of a nerdy niche area that sort of um, you know kind of shy librarians was were, were the only people I'm, I'm you know sort of uh, paraphrasing of course um, that that was the historic you know the profession of history saw them as being quite marginal and I think library and archival history is becoming much more central to uh, a whole variety of um, his, you know, historical investigation, uh, time series, and particularly, um, you know, there's this flourishing community looking at archives in the ancient world, uh, and from a whole variety of perspectives, and that's, you know, incredibly strong uh, field of endeavour now. Um, you've seen, you know, there's a whole another industry around fragments um, of medieval manuscripts and you know they're uh, both of trying to reconstruct the fragments but actually looking at why were the documents and, and books broken up in the first place uh, and then we see it in um, you know the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars what happened to books you know centralization confiscation you know migration so I, I what I'm hoping is that library, that library and archive history becomes much more a central historical legitimate area and not a kind of niche marginal uh, uh, piece of history. Exactly. And, and anybody who was fortunate enough to attend uh, the showcase on the Beyond 2022 project today that was run by Peter Crooks and Kieran Wallace would have seen just an extraordinary uh, expression of ordinary people's interest in jury records and so on and, and how these are being reconstituted and recovered. Uh, so obviously this is an area of great interest at a popular level too. But to, to go back to governments, Richard, and uh, 
tricky question that's come in from Gabrielle Brocklesby. And Gabrielle is asking about personal files and archives and refers specifically to the Magdalene Laundries files and archives that have been such a contentious subject in Ireland recently. Uh, when, we, when we have to negotiate the possession of personal records and archives that deal with very sensitive subjects, how does an archivist, how does a, a librarian stand in relation to government authority? Is it an oppositional relationship? Is it a, a kind of uh, um, sympathetic relationship? Um, I, obviously, I'm asking a very broad question in relation to a specific <laughs> subject and putting you yeah. on the spot. But how do you yeah. see your own role, for example, in, in relation to sensitive material? Um. Well, I think I think it, you know being sensitive um, is is one of the tasks that a librarian and archivist has to uh, has to or one of the attributes that we have to take on. And I certainly wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't advocate for um, librarians and archivists routinely breaking the law. I think that would be uh, a kind of dangerous thing for um, uh, for me to advocate. But I do think that we should be critical. I do think that we have um, our communities in best interests at heart. And we also have to um, respect the wishes of um, donors and depositors, um, even when they have been you know, a long time in the past. And I talk about that in the book in respect to literary archives where um, you know, individuals might leave a collection which may have very kind of sensitive issues in it and they ask for it not to be open for 20 years or whatever after their death. And I think librarians and archivists have been pretty good at respecting that, even though we get academics banging on our door sometimes, literally, I've literally had that in my career. Um, <laughs> saying you've got to open up this archive um, because no one's around anymore. Um, but in terms of government, and I, I, you know, I'm not an expert on the current issues around the Magdalene laundries, um, but, um, you know, I, I think that there are, citizens have, have rights. And um, I think the archival and library profession can be ones who can, take part in public debates about defending those rights and seeking laws to be changed or sometimes laws to be properly implemented which um, see those rights returned to citizens and where documents as I was saying at the end of my talk um, about you know one of the five functions that libraries and archives have is that they are repositories of rights and we need to be fighting not only for those rights to be upheld, but for our community to have uh, access to those, uh, those, those, those rights and those documents and to be advocates for them in public debate. So, uh, and I think that's one of the, the dangers that we face in a society which, as I, I think that as a society, we undervalue libraries and archives and the leaders in our profession need to get out there more and advocate and be part of those very public and sometimes very political debates. And I think, Helen, you're 
you know, doing a wonderful job in Ireland. Sandra Collins, the National Librarian, equally very vocal and very active in the field. And there are many others, Barry Houlihan and, and others who are, I, I think, doing an absolutely tremendous job. So I think more of us need to be doing that sort of thing, raising our head above the parapet and engaging in public, pu public policy debate and trying to change public policy, trying to make our political leaders wake up and smell the coffee about um, the rights of citizens to access, um, you know, their own documentary history. Indeed. And, and Richard, even without being able to see our audience, I know people are nodding and agreeing with you. And I, I just want to point out that a version of that question came in from lots of our audience, uh, including Katrina Crow, uh, former head of our National Archives and, and one of the contributors to this series, who's written brilliantly on this topic. Uh, and, and in many similar terms to what you've been saying. I'm going to go to a question that I think is fascinating, and Helen, you might want to come in on this as well, but it's from Grace O'Sullivan, and she asks, how important has the oral tradition been in retention of ideas and stories for the retranscription of what's been lost over time? Grace, what a lovely question, but a tricky one. But of course, in the series and in today's lecture, we've focused on documents, written archives, records, material effects. Is there a role for the oral tradition, the spoken word, and, and how do we preserve those records as well? Is that the, the librarian's job? Yeah, uh, I think it is actually, to some extent, the librarian's job. And you can see, that, I, mean, I think it is a great question. I, I'm not an expert in this field by any means, but um, I think there are fantastic examples of where Librarians and archivists have worked with scholars to do field recordings, to preserve uh, early recordings where other field workers have operated. You think of Alan Lomax in the Library of Congress and his recording of American folk song. You know, absolutely, you know, incredible body of material that was taken in the field. Uh, you know, uh, in this case, it's not. Um, uh, you know, it's it's song and music rather than, uh, you know, the spoken word. But, you know, that is an absolutely vital repository, a vital um, record of, um, you know, uh, communities through history who have kept those traditions alive, um, not by writing it down or recording it, but by performing and playing. And so, Libraries and archives who have sound archives, the British Library does, the National Library of Scotland does, you know, these are really important aspects of our work, because um, as communities, you know, get um, affected by climate change and by social change of all kinds, demographic change, recording them is one way of preserving that knowledge. Yeah, exactly. And and just for Grace and, and people interested in this, uh, one of the lectures in the series uh, given by Professor Sicheta Mahajan addressed the oral testimonies and the collection of oral testimonies in India in relation to the experience of partition. And I think gave us real insight into, into that field of recuperation and, and recovery. Um, and I might bring Helen in again at this point, because Helen, 
this, this question of our own library and, and what its responsibilities are has come up uh, from lots of people in the audience. <laughs> and um, not least from William Mansfield, who puts it very bluntly, uh, asking the college or library is about to be restored. How can we be sure that an electric spark does not cause destruction? Um, we, we hear time and time again in this series and through uh, your book, Richard, and through uh, your talk today about libraries burning, about accidental fires. Helen, obviously it's a tremendous responsibility on the shoulders of, of the head librarian of an institution to make sure that, that these treasures are literally safe, not just culturally safe. Do you want to come uh, and just reassure people that... Uh... <laughs> Thank you, Eve. Um, so um, obviously we've got six or seven libraries at, um, at Trinity, um, but I assume people are, in, are talking about the old library, uh, which is, I would say, it's the most important Georgian building in Ireland, um, the most recognised interior in Ireland. Um, I said that to the Taoiseach when he came to visit, um, and then um, he was um, he helped us with the with the government funding and so on. Um, it's actually it's all about risk mitigation and being eyes wide open. And right from the beginning, we have been eyes wide open. And, you know, you've, there's a litany. It isn't specifically about libraries. I would say it's historic structures. And there is just a litany of, you know, um, Windsor Castle, York Minster, um, Upark. Um, we had the Rio de Janeiro Museum, uh, Glasgow School of Art twice. And many of them, we are very clear that some of the, the riskiest time is when you're de-risking is when you're doing the very work because everything's, uh, well, it's just, that is the riskiest time. We have said that right from the beginning of this project and that is all planned in uh, with fire watches and um, all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of features. Um, but it gets to the point of, well, what if you don't do it? Yeah. And then you would absolutely have the catastrophic loss. Um, I don't want to over catastrophize, isn't it? That's a, a verb at the moment. Don't want, but there is, um, and it's perfectly safe and we've got fire certificates and everything like that. But it is, um, it is at risk and we don't have um, appropriate or good enough fire prevention. I'm all about prevention. This is about prevention and then fire suppression. So that's, that's, that's the, uh, the big driver for it. Um, uh, does that answer your it question? It does answer the question. I think it's just really to reassure people as well. And also, you know, the science and technology behind this, I know, oh. is extraordinary. But we're, we're all watching the, <laughs> uh, the project with great interest. Um, thanks, Helen. Uh, there are so many terrific questions that have come in and also, Richard, so many appreciative comments about your lecture. And I just want to, again, tell people that we will make sure that the speakers see everything that's in the Q&A so that they know uh, points that we haven't got to. We, we can see, they can see that these have come in. But before we close, I just want to take this opportunity to ask Peter Crooks himself to say a few words uh, at this moment. Peter, over to you. Eve, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you for your kind comments right at the beginning. And thanks to Richard for a wonderful lecture. I can't really imagine a more fitting conclusion to this series. You've, you've echoed the sweep that we've tried to uh, cover in the last three years. And I'm also very grateful to Helen, 
who was a, an advisor and a friend and a supporter as we were planning this and throughout. And that's wonderful that you could take part in this uh, final installment. It really has been an incredible privilege to be asked to coordinate uh, this series. Uh, and I'm so grateful to Jane Elmire and uh, to Eve and to the incredible team at The Hub for their support in making it happen. I have a, a, a short closing reflection. Uh, I find that <clears throat> as we come to the end, I am returning to the beginning. Uh, we've talked about Alexandria a few times this evening, and our first lecture was by the director of the Bibliotheca Alexandrina, the reborn uh, library uh, of Alexandria, Dr. Ismail Sergelson. And it was an incredible night, almost exactly two and a half years ago. We were in a packed lecture hall, you couldn't imagine it now. Uh, and after almost an hour of Dr. Sarah Galdon recounting and deconstructing the myth of Alexandria, as Richard has done uh, this evening, its many layers of destruction across uh, the centuries. Uh, Dr. Sarah Galdon turned to the Arab Spring and that moment in 2011, when young people, amid the rising against the Mubarak regime, formed a human cordon around the library to protect any harm coming to what they called our library. I think that is the key phrase, our library, not the regime. The library was open. It had a pluralist spirit, even within that repressive regime. And on that occasion, amid that conflict, it came to no harm. And that juxtaposition, when you put it in those terms, the myth of destruction and suddenly this moment of uh, protection was so powerful that a number of the attendees, including um, my colleague who was chairing, were moved to tears. It was an incredible moment. I think that that spirit of openness and pluralism uh, is such a vital lesson. That's one that Richard uh, Ovenden has echoed this evening with his emphasis on the library as a pillar of open society. I think much that we have heard about cultural loss and destruction across the last three years uh, we can see has arisen from sectional identity politics. As soon as cultural heritage is sectionalized, as soon as it is identified as their heritage and not our heritage, that's when the risks begin to uh, grow and destruction uh, uh, happens. In that first lecture, and probably throughout the series, uh, those who've attended have heard me talk about the UNESCO report of 1996 entitled Lost Memory, commissioned in the years after the international community was jolted by the ethnic conflict in uh, the Balkans and the disaster at Sarajevo. And the report documents in extraordinary detail the losses in archives and libraries during the 20th century, many of them we've touched upon this evening. But as I said then, Ireland's losses, of which there have been many, and we mark one tonight as the centenary of the Customs House and another next year, the centenary of the Four Courts Place, Ireland's losses at national level do not appear in that report. It was as if the memory of our lost memory had itself been lost, maybe smothered in shame, somehow forgotten, but not forgiven. Well, for me, I think what Out of the Ashes across the last three years has helped uh, us do is recover in the important sense of recovering understanding, recovering how we can relate our experience in Ireland to that of the wider 
world, that wider sense of recovering understanding as opposed to just recovering knowledge and information, which is what Beyond 2022 is doing in its more literal reconstruction. So I see the two um, projects as paralleling and supporting each other in that way. Needless to say, there was no human cordon around the four courts in 1922. Nearly 100 years on from that disaster, I have, across the last few years, found it frankly humbling to listen from our privileged position in Ireland uh, to speakers from around the world where cultural destruction has often accompanied extreme humanitarian disaster. We have a complex and difficult history in Ireland, but despite the losses of 100 years ago, we have an incredibly rich documentary heritage which stretches back centuries and through which that complex, difficult story can be told with passionate dispassion. The public appetite for this heritage and for our culture is enormous and the expectation of access is growing. That was absolutely clear earlier today in the event that we held uh, virtually to mark the Custom House fire when local archive services came together virtually with the project, the Beyond 2022 project, in a shared spirit of reaching out, of connecting with communities and recovering again, recovering understanding about the value of these materials that have not been lost. And I think it's in that ethos of a responsibility shared, not of proprietorship, but of joint custodianship based on pluralist values, locally, nationally, internationally. In that ethos, I think we can find a metaphorical human cordon to protect our cultural heritage, to answer some of the concerns that Richard and Helen have shared tonight, to promote investment in our institutions, to extend access, to inspire engagement, and to enrich ourselves with deeper and deepening understanding. And so on that optimistic note, uh, I think we're moving to bring the last three years of Out of the Ashes to a close with a heartfelt thanks to you all for listening and to all the speakers. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Peter. That was just beautifully said. I know we will take those words to heart and take them home with us. Uh, my thanks to you, Peter, to Richard Ovenden, to Helen Shenton. Uh, it's very moving uh, to think that Out of the Ashes has come to a conclusion, but what a marvellous achievement it's been. Uh, my thanks too to the Trinity Longroom Hub team, particularly Francesca Arafati. Uh, again, to our sponsors, Sean and Sarah Reynolds, uh, with our gratitude. To everyone listening, you can listen back to the lectures in the series, including this one, uh, and keep an eye on related and future events uh, through the Trinity Longroom Hub website. I know that many people who have joined us this evening have been with Peter and his guests throughout the Out of the Ashes series, and I would like everyone to know how much that we have welcomed such a responsive and such an engaged audience. The response from the public uh, to, to this series has given it real momentum and meaning. So my thanks to all of you on behalf of Peter and the Trinity Longroom Hub. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all again in the very near future. Take care, everyone, and good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone.
Here's to the next 10 years.